Our reading today is an excerpt from The Stories That Bind Us by Bruce Feiler. What is the secret sauce that holds a family together? What are the ingredients that make some families effective, resilient, and happy? Sarah Duke, a psychologist who works with children with learning disabilities, noticed something about her students. The ones who know a lot about their families tend to do better when they face challenges. Her husband, Marshall Duke, and his research team developed a measure called Do You Know Scale? And they asked children to answer questions like, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know how your parents met? Do you know about an illness or something really terrible that happened in your family? Researchers asked the kids these questions, and then they conducted a battery of psychological tests. The conclusion? The more children knew about their family's history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher their self-esteem, and the more successfully they believed their families functioned. The do you know scale turned out to be an incredibly strong predictor of children's emotional health and happiness. Psychologists have found that every family has a unifying narrative, and those narratives take three shapes. First, there's the ascending family narrative. Son, when we came to this country, we had nothing. Our family worked, we opened a store, your grandfather went to high school, your father went to college, and now you. Second is the descending narrative. Sweetheart, we used to have it all. Then we lost everything. The most helpful narrative is the third one. It's called the oscillating family narrative. Dear, let me tell you, we've had ups and downs in our family. We built a family business. Your grandfather was a pillar of the community. Your mother was on the board of the hospital. But we've also had setbacks. You had an uncle who was arrested. We had a house burned down. Your father lost a job. But no matter what happened, we always stuck together as a family. Children who have the most self-confidence have what's called a strong intergenerational self. They know that they belong to something bigger than themselves. Successful human enterprises of any kind, from families to companies to military units to countries, go out of their way to capture their core identity. They teach about the history of their people, and that teaching increases their camaraderie and increases their ability to bond more closely. It is important for all kinds of groups to tell a positive story about themselves. When faced with a challenge, happy groups, like happy people, just add a new chapter to their life story that shows them overcoming that hardship. The bottom line, if you want a happier family, create, refine, and retell the story of your family's positive moments and of your ability to bounce back from the difficult ones. That act alone may increase the odds that your family will thrive for many generations to come. So during our musical interlude, I invite you all to reflect on those words. What stories about adversity and resilience were told in your family as you grew up? What stories does your family tell today? And here at Northlake in our church family, what stories do we tell? Our monthly theme for February is resilience. I'll talk today about how we can help build resilience in ourself and in the children and adults in our lives, our church community, and the broader society. So what is resilience and how do you know if you have it? If you were lucky enough to ever, never ever face any challenges, you wouldn't know if you had resilience. And honestly, you probably wouldn't because we build resilience by facing and mastering challenges in our lives. But for most of us, challenges come to us on a far too regular basis, right? Anytime we face a life transition, any new developmental stage, that's a challenge. 
whether that's a toddler who falls down many times before they learn to walk, or the new parent who has to cope with all the tantrums that might cause, whether it's a move out to your first apartment, your midlife crisis, or the challenges of aging. Those are all expected challenges. Any developmental psychologist will tell you they're typical. It doesn't mean they're not hard for the people who are going through them. There's also all the unexpected challenges, the falls in the mud puddle, the yet another snow day, the car that hits you and breaks your arm just when you're settling into your new ministry, <laughs> or Humpty Dumpty's fall from the wall. And then there's the interpersonal challenges, the days when the human beings around you are difficult, the boss who makes unfair demands, the girlfriend who says she's just not into you, or the parent who lets you down. Challenges keep on coming. Yep, hard times, hard times, coming round once more. But, and I know people hate it when you say this, but every moment of adversity is a learning experience. Each one offers opportunities for personal growth. Each one helps us learn how to stretch and how to bounce back. One way of defining resilience is doing better than expected in difficult circumstances. We all have times when it seems like life is trying to knock us down, whether that's in small ways or in big ways. The question is, how will we respond? Will we let adversity pin us down? Or will we bounce back up again? Or end standing stronger and taller than ever before? Or maybe even learn to fly? And how can our family and our community and our faith help us to bounce back? Resilience is a topic that's long fascinated me, and it's been a focus of my professional and personal life. I first noticed different degrees of resilience when I was a teenager. I'd been diagnosed with bone cancer, and I was traveling back and forth from my home in Wyoming to Denver Children's Hospital for treatment. So I was bouncing between two worlds. At home, my friends were typical teenagers, facing daily challenges of teen life, like pimples, bad test scores, unrequited crushes. At Children's, my friends were coping with lifelong disability, recovering from life-threatening accidents, or undergoing the brutal chemotherapy and poor prognoses of childhood cancer care in the early 80s. But wherever I was, whenever challenges appeared for people, whether the challenges were small or the challenges were huge, I saw three different types of responses to them. Some people, as you see on the bottom there, some are overwhelmed, overwhelmed and defeated by the challenges that they face. Some manage to bounce back from things, at least mostly. And then there were some who were made stronger by having walked through their challenges. I wondered why there were those differences. After my own treatment, I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology, then a master's in social work. I worked with kids who were facing cancer treatment, people hoping to really receive a liver transplant in time. And I worked with people with AIDS at a time when AIDS was always a terminal diagnosis. With all my clients and their families, I watched and I wondered about resilience. Why do some people seem to have it and others don't? Now, for the past 25 years, I've worked with parents of young children. I've worked for Parent Trust for Washington Children, PEPS, and Bellevue College Parent Education. All these are parents and children who are all going through those predictable developmental challenges where people just keep saying, don't worry, it's just a phase, but where every day is exhausting, overwhelming, and full of worry. I spend a lot of time thinking about what parents can do to help build resilience in themselves and in their children. And I think that we as a church community can also ask ourselves, what can we do to build resilience in ourselves, in our fellow North Lakers, and in our broader community? 
Resilience is a complex issue. There's lots of factors that influence our response to adversity, so we're going to look at some of those today. The reality is that hard things come into everyone's life at some time. Sometimes there are unexpected challenges, like a move to a new home, but often adverse circumstances arrive out of the blue. An illness, a home break-in, a job layoff, any of those might appear in our metaphorical inbox. When a challenge hits, we start running with it, and we figure out our response as we go along. Several things affect our response and whether or not we end up in a good place in the end. Some of those things are risk factors and some are protective. The risk factors drag us down. They challenge our ability to cope and to recover from this challenge and they increase the chance of poor outcomes. The protective factors, those are things that make it easier for us to cope. They lift us up and make it more likely that we'll have a positive and empowered result. What tips the balance for good outcomes is when the protective factors outweigh the risk factors. When we have so many good things going on for us that hard times are easy to overcome. Amongst the factors that influence our response, some are on the individual level, specific to that person and the ways they interact with the world. Some are found within their network of community, close friends, and family. And some factors are from the broader society as a whole. So we're gonna start at the individual level. Some people are inherently just more resilient than others, whatever life throws at them. Dr. Thomas Boyce researched the human stress response for 40 years, and he says some people are dandelions and some people are orchids. Dandelions are people who can go through almost anything and be unfazed by it all. I lucked, it out, lucked out, I'm a dandelion all the way. Orchids are a lot more sensitive. They're more vulnerable to stress. They need more support to weather the storms. But given the right nurturing care, they can thrive and become incredibly beautiful. Maybe more beautiful than us scrappy dandelions. <laughs> so what individual factors help make us more or less resilient? Developmental psychologist Emmy Werner found that resilient people have a strong internal locus of control. They believe that they are in control of their own destinies. Even if bad things happen to them, they feel they can choose how to let that impact them. Earlier we sang the hymn, Voice Still and Small. I believe that voice is deep inside all. Some of us just need more help connecting to it. Like Humpty Dumpty in our time for all ages. Took them a little while to get back there. Resilient people have confidence in their own competence, and they have a growth mindset. Instead of thinking of, them, of themselves as not good at something, they think, I'm not good at it yet. If I just keep working hard, I bet I'll figure it out. Temperament-wise, it's easier to be resilient when you have a sense of humor about life, when you're naturally easygoing, naturally flexible, calm. As our opening hymn said, no storm can shake my inmost calm. Well, to the rock I'm clinging, how? Can I keep from singing? We know that our mental health is influenced by many things that are beyond our control, genetic, epigenetic, and environmental. Depression can make it supremely hard to bounce back from challenges, and anxiety can mean that even the small challenges quickly become overwhelming as you spin into worrying about how much worse it might become. Physical illness and disability are also challenging circumstances on their own, often creating chronic adversity, and they can also make it harder to bounce back from any other challenge. So we know that good mental health and good physical health for those who are lucky to have it is a huge protective factor. Having goals you're working toward helps to re with resilient. It's the eyes on the prize focus that helps us push through hard times. Resilient individuals tend to have things outside of themselves that give them a reason to get up in the morning. This can be an interest or a passion such as music or art. It could be big dreams they're working towards, 
could be knowing that other people are counting on them. For Humpty Dumpty in our story, it was a desire to be up high close to the birds that helped him move forward. And according to psychologist George Bonanno, a key factor is perception. How do we interpret difficult circumstances? Do we see every an event as traumatic, or do we see an event as an opportunity to learn and grow? Sometimes even something that seems tragic might be very sad in the short term, but it can also be that powerful life event that changes someone for better in the long term. Many of us that have things in our, back, in our history and background that were traumatic at the time, but have made us the people we are today. But this positive perception, finding meaning in loss and finding meaning in challenges, is more likely for people who have a spiritual or religious faith than those who don't. So what, that brings us to our next set of protective factors. So let's look at the impact of family and also of close community. So community might mean for a child their school, for an adult their workplace, or it can also mean a church community like here at Northlake. When those circles are healthy, they provide the key for protective factor of a secure home base. I work with toddlers, and I can tell you everyone that's securely attached can adventure out into the world and be bold and brave. The ones who are feeling a little nervous about that attachment tend to cling to their parents and be afraid to try things. So having that secure home base is vital. From our communities, from our families, our schools, our work, our churches, we learn our values. We learn what does it mean to be a good person. We learn about faith, whether that's a belief in a higher power or a belief in a greater good. Faith can provide a strong beacon of hope in the darkness of despair. We also learn our stories, those oscillating family stories described in our reading. Dear, we've had good times and bad times, but we are a strong, resilient people, and we keep moving forward together. On our close communities, we find our key relationships. Researchers at Harvard found that no matter what the source of hardship is in anyone's life, the single most common factor for children who develop resilience is at least one stable, committed relationship with a supportive adult. Whether that's a parent, friend, clergy, teacher, or coach, that person offers emotional support, they help us to see our own strengths, and they teach us how to plan and to cope in healthy ways. In our communities, like here at Northlake, we learn that we are valued and that we can contribute in meaningful ways. We can see that our commitment is essential. You'll notice the audio and video team who's really pulling it together for us today. <laughs> right? We know that our commitment, our commitment is essential and that we're valued and that things wouldn't be working well without us there. So sometimes on our dark days, what keeps us going is knowing that other people are counting on us and we have to show up for them. These communities can also be a source of concrete support. They can be a ride to the doctor's office after an injury, a bed to crash on when a relationship falls apart, alone when you can't pay a bill, someone to watch your kids for you while you go to an important appointment. All those little things help to carry us through a hard spot. Now the problem is that our families and our communities are not always healthy. And just as a healthy home base can build resilience, an unhealthy family is devastating to our long-term resilience. There's some really important research in health and mental health called the ACEs study. And if you don't know about it, I encourage you to look it up. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Researchers asked people about their childhood. Had they experienced things such as abuse, witnessed domestic violence, had parents with mental health issues or addiction or who were incarcerated, or had they experienced homelessness? 60% of people have one or more of those experiences in childhood. The more you have, the less resilient you are as an adult. About 12% of people have an ACE score of four or higher. 
With a score of four or higher, you are four times more likely to experience addiction, three times more likely to have heart disease, respiratory disease, and diabetes, far more likely to experience mental health challenges, and six times more likely to say you never feel optimism or hope, and much more likely to die young. The good news about adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, is that they can be overcome. Knowing about the negative impact of ACEs and working to mitigate it is the first step, but another key step is that thing I mentioned about healthy relationships and healthy communities. The research is really clear that even for kids from really toxic home environments, even just one healthy relationship with that one positive mentor, that basketball coach or that science teacher, one positive mentor in their community is a huge boost on their path to recovery. So now let's look at the impact of society and resources. We have a strong cultural narrative in America the cultural narrative that says everyone can succeed if they just try hard enough. But we all know that we don't have a level playing field in America. We're not all starting from the same place. A person who is living in poverty in a crime-ridden neighborhood where drug use is common escape from the pain of living doesn't have the same resilience resources available to, some, to them as someone without those risk factors. Or even if had, someone had all the other advantages they could have, if they happen to have dark skin, happen to be female, or gay, or transgender, or disabled, or non-Christian. They, the they have to carry the weight of systematic oppression. That weight makes it harder to magically bounce back from challenges. I said earlier, I happen to be a dandelion. Maybe that would be true of me no matter what, but the deal is it's always been easy for me to be resilient. Because whatever challenges came upon me, I have so many resources in place. I was lucky enough to be born into a stable, white, middle-class family. I made it through my childhood with an ACE score of zero. In adulthood, I've always had resources, so whatever challenges might arrive, I've got backup plans. I have car insurance, home insurance, health insurance. I've got flexible hours at work, paid sick leave, and short-term disability pay. I've got cash in the bank. I have a safe, warm home. I've got people to take care of me and people to take care of my kids. I've got the skills to research and access any services that I need and I can speak with educated words and a voice of authority and the white skin that afford me respectful treatment by all those that I encounter. All of those things make it easy for me to bounce back. Makes it easy for me to be resilient. And I have to acknowledge the privilege in that. And I have to use my privilege to work for, for, for ways that to, to increase other people's access to those same backup plans to carry them through the hard times. So let's start talking about how we can build resilience in ourselves and in others. So let's first look at the societal level and what we can do to tip the balance. We can work to dismantle systematic oppression. We can respect and support cultural identity as a tools for empowerment. We can help increase equitable access to concrete resources and safe communities. We can support organizations which work to increase hope in impoverished communities through the arts, access to job opportunities, and tools to help people have dreams and reach for those dreams. At the family and community level, we can think about the stories we tell. Stories can mobilize sources of faith, hope, and cultural traditions. When you're facing difficult times, it helps to feel like you're a part of something bigger and to believe that your people have a history of weathering challenge and emerging stronger than before. You can build relationships and be a mentor. Remember, a key factor in resilience is having a relationship with someone who believes in you, encourages you to be the best possible you, and keeps you moving when life seems too hard. Each one of you can be one of those people. 
not just for your friends and family, but for any person here at North Lake or any person in the broader community. Anytime we interact with anyone in a way that reflects their inherent worth and dignity, we build their resilience. We can let people know that their presence in a community matters and that they can make valuable contributions. This is even in little things. Here at North Lake, I'll occasionally ask a child to help me as I set up or tidy. Even a three-year-old can be asked to help you carry something. Sometimes kids are surprised to be asked because we often don't ask kids. But when we do, and we thank them for their help, and we tell them their help made a difference, it increases their sense of efficacy and competence. You can offer concrete support. You can lend a helping hand to a parent who has their hands full. Offer a ride to someone recovering from an injury, help someone work on a resume, pass on news about available affordable housing, or accompany someone to a support group meeting that they're afraid to go to on their own. Those are just some examples of simple things we can do to help people get back on their feet after a challenge. Keep your eyes open for your opportunities. At the individual level, we can support them in viewing themselves as having control over their destiny. You can use with people the framework of I have, I am, I can. That encourages someone facing hardship to think about what resources they have, to tell themselves a positive story of who they are. And sometimes if they can't find the positive story of who they are, a positive story of who their people are. And we can think about concrete steps they can take to help improve their situation. All these things build their internal locus of control. Carol Dweck has researched what she calls the growth-based mindset, which is a belief that we are capable of doing more and being better. And Angela Duckworth has researched what she calls grit. Grit is a vital mechanism in achieving success despite barriers. One way to build these things is to talk about mistakes and failures and setbacks as normal parts of learning, not as reasons to quit. Remind yourself and those around you that everyone runs up against things they can't do. The ones that succeed are the ones who pick themselves up and try again. In terms of temperament, some people are naturally more fearful. And when things seem hard, their anxiety takes over. But researchers at Yale have learned if we accommodate them too much, it actually makes anxiety worse. If we tell someone, I know that's too scary, you don't have to do it, it actually validates for them that that's way too scary and way too powerful. Instead, when someone says they're scared, we can say to them, or you can say to yourselves, it's okay to feel scared. We all feel scared. Let's make a plan for how we're going to do it anyway. We know mental health and physical health are huge protective factors. So at the societal level, we can be doing public policy advocacy to increase access to mental health care and physical health care. And at the individual, self, at the individual level with ourselves and others, we can think about self-care. We can remember that it's important to prioritize self-care. Putting on your own oxygen mask first will help to recharge your batteries to give you enough energy to face whatever challenges may come. We know that having goals helps people keep pushing forward. Ask people to tell you about their dreams. Help them to figure out what the next manageable step is toward achieving that dream. Emphasize that even when challenges seem hard in the short term, we can work to overcome them and not let them block us from that long-term goal. We can also work on perception. Learn how to reframe challenges for yourself and share with others what you've learned. There are three aspects to reframing. If you find yourself believing that when bad things happen, it's always your fault, try reframing that to, sometimes bad things happen that are beyond my control. What I can control is how I choose to respond to them. 
Stay focused on fixing the specific problem rather than thinking it's a sign of some global problem. For example, if you don't get a job you were hoping for, remember that it's not that you were fundamentally unemployable. It's just one job that said no. Keep trying until you find the right fit. View problems as impermanent. It will get better in time, and there are steps you can take to help it improve. In the end, some of the most important protective factors that build resilience and increase positive outcomes are the stories that we tell ourselves about the challenges that we face and the stories that we tell those in our community about who we are and what we are capable of. Earlier, our hymn said, just as long as I have breath, I must answer yes to life. Though with pain I made with my way, still with hope I meet each day. It is that hope that carries us forward. We will now sing together hymn 170, We Are Gentle, Angry People. I have rewritten that first verse for today to remind us of an important story that we can tell ourselves today and any day. We are a strong, resilient people, and we are singing, singing for our lives. We are a strong, resilient people, and we are singing, singing for our lives. Our benediction is by Mary Ann Radmacher. Courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day whispering, I will try again tomorrow. So my friends, as you go forth into your week, go forth with courage, whether yours is roaring or quietly whispering. May it be so.